Well, um, in late uh, September, we kicked off a, a, a series working our way through the book of Acts. And uh, we took a little bit of a break over the Christmas season, but we're picking back up today on that series. So if you brought your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16 and hold your place there. Just as a reminder, the book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and it documents the greatest spiritual awakening and revival in human history. It tells the story of the birth, the life, the acts of the early church. It tells the story of all that God did through this little group of nobodies that had no political sway, they had no educational advantages, they had no positional influence, that they, they were a group of nobodies that God used to turn the first century world upside down and literally changed the trajectory of human history. Going through this letter is so important for us today because we're in a time in our world, we're in a time in our country where there is a whole lot of confusion around what the church is, what the church is supposed to be, what it actually means to be a follower of Christ. We talked about that there's this idea that we can claim to be followers of Christ and yet look nothing like him. That we can claim to be Christian and yet not represent Jesus in any way, shape, or form to the world around us or cooperate with the Holy Spirit in becoming more and more like him. And we've been talking about what it means to be the church, how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to live as Christ followers, and how we collectively as the body of Christ are to live and operate and function in the world. We've been talking about this over the last several months. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and this is sort of how we kicked off the series, we have the whole structure for the book of Acts, but we also have the mission of the church. It says this, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, and the, the word for witness is literally the word martyr. You will lay down your life for my sake in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And over the last number of months, we've seen the gospel beginning to spread in Jerusalem, then move into Judea and Samaria and then move into the ends of the earth. And what's so fascinating is that when this was spoken by Jesus himself, when this was documented and written by Luke, what's so fascinating is 2,000 years ago, when that was documented, when that was spoken, you and I were the ends of the earth. And yet, here we are. 2,000 years later, caught up in a revolution of joy, of hope, of love, of peace, of grace, of kindness, of mercy, of justice, right? And that's what the church is. Today we're in Acts chapter 16. I'm gonna give you some background. Fascinating setup for this story. Paul and Silas are in, the, uh, in Macedonia. So it's a, a region in Greece, and specifically they were in Philippi. And they went there to uh, plant churches. They went there to make disciples, and this is one of their missionary journeys. They're preaching the gospel wherever they go. And wherever they go, for days on end, there's this woman that's following them. And she's following them. And wherever they go, she's shouting loudly about the fact that these men, Paul and Silas, 
are carrying the message of God and proclaiming the way of salvation. And for days on end, she's following them and doing this. And in fact, the, the scripture, the passage actually describes her as a slave. And, and for whatever reason, she's doing this. And Paul at one, I love how human this is. Because Paul at one point, he, he gets so annoyed with this girl that's following them that he turns around and rebukes her and then delivers her from a demon. A great act. The only problem was, she was a slave, and whatever demon had possessed her gave her the ability to foretell the future. And so her owners lost whatever uh, financial advantages they had invested in this person. So they take this to the magistrates, cause up this big stir, have Paul and Silas arrested for delivering a girl from demon possession. They have them beaten, thrown in prison, and put in shackles. And that is the setup for our story today. Isn't that great? <laughs> All right, Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights to be rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go, speaking of Paul and Silas. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, there was no trial, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is a fascinating story. I want to just start off by asking the question, who was this jailer? What type of person was he? What would he have been like? And we know just uh, through history that most likely this man would have been ex-military. He would have been a Roman soldier at some point. And what happens is as you serve as a Roman soldier, eventually, if you survive long enough, you can retire and you get a nice government job like this as a jailer to kind of finish off your days. And so we know he was military and we know that he uh, had been given this sort of government job in retirement. What's interesting about this guy is he would have been fairly put together. He would have been fairly well off. He would have been uh, a very disciplined person. 
and uh, he's got decent pay. He's a very practical, I mean, you, you think of a, 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 an ex-military type of person, very pragmatic, very practical, uh, maybe even a brutal man, maybe cynical about life because of everything that he had seen and experienced as a Roman soldier and now as a jailer. And it's interesting because he's a pragmatist. This guy most likely would have been a pragmatist. And yet, the experience that God gives him in this story is so radically impractical. It is so the opposite, the antithesis of what this man would have expected. And, and that's how God sort of gets his attention. In fact, we see that it throws off the core of his very being, the foundation of his very life. Because in the passage, it talks about the fact that there was a physical earthquake, but yet in this man's life, there was a spiritual shaking. There was a spiritual earthquake in his own life. And here are Paul and Silas. They've been beaten within an inch of their lives. Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, was unjustly imprisoned. As a Roman, you were to receive a trial in order to determine your guilt or your innocence. And, and so Paul was unjustly thrown into prison. He was unjustly flogged. And, uh, and just as a side note, you know, I, I, I read some of these stories and it just puts something in me that I, I just can't wait to get home to heaven one day to have some conversations with these guys about this stuff. Like, Paul, tell, what was this woman doing as she followed you? Like, what caused you to just finally get so annoyed and lose your patience and then just, I don't know, how did you figure out that she was possessed by a demon and what did you say and then what happened and what was it like being arrested unjustly? It's like there's so many incredible stories. Anyway, that's just me, personal side note. So that night, in prison, beaten nearly to death, what do they do? This is fascinating. They don't do what most of us would probably do. They don't fall into despair. They don't begin to sort of scheme and strategize how they're gonna get out of prison they don't do that. They instead start singing. They sing hymns to God after being unjustly arrested, beaten within an inch of their lives and thrown into prison. They start worshiping. <laughs> that's what they do. You know, one of the things that's fascinating, it says that the prisoners heard it and they were probably annoyed because it's midnight. They're singing hymns to God at midnight, the prisoners hear it, the jailer would have heard it, and that alone would have been so radically confusing to all of them. Why in the world are these men rejoicing after being thrown into prison? One of the things that I love that gets highlighted throughout the entire book of Acts, and in fact throughout the entire scriptures, is this theme of resilient joy in the midst of suffering. Resilient joy in the midst of persecution. And this is where James writes about this in James chapter one, he says, count it all, what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, so trials are testing your faith, and when your faith is tested, it produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Anybody wanna be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Okay, if that's you, you are going to be tested. Your faith is gonna come under fire. God cares more about your character than he does about your comfort, right? And so God is going to allow trials of various kinds to come your way to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First Peter chapter four, verse 12, it says, Beloved, I love this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening with you. So I think one of our big problems in Western culture is we have an expectation that life should be fairly smooth. That if we do the right things, that if we obey God, if we're moral people, if we follow this guideline, if we follow these steps, then everything should be fairly smooth sailing. And yet, what Peter tells us here is he's I love the fact that he's just setting our expectations. He's going, hey, as followers of Christ, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Don't be surprised when you're attacked for my name's sake. Don't be surprised. Don't, don't think that something strange is happening to you, but what, what does he say to do instead? Verse 13. But what? Rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because why? The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Is that not good news? Right, when, when you are under a fiery trial, rejoice. Right, this is a command of scripture that whenever you're suffering, whenever you're attacked for Christ's name, whenever you share in Christ's sufferings, you can have peace knowing that God is with you in the midst of all of that and that he's refining you, he's growing your character, and he is making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is good news, right? And this is exactly what we see with Paul and Silas. There was this unwavering belief that God, even though the, their, how they had been treated, arrested, thrown in prison, unjustly, beaten, even though all of those circumstances had happened, there was an unwavering belief that God was even at work in the midst of that. That God was doing something around them, God was doing something in them, and God was preparing them for something that was ahead. And because of that unwavering belief, their response to the fiery trial, their response to persecution, it wasn't to retaliate. It was to sing. It was to sing. Now, I know, like, when I first read I'm like, really? That seems kind of lame. Like, you're just going to sing? You sing song? But look, like we said earlier, this is how we wage war. This is how we fight battles. And they trusted in God's unwavering involvement in this. And as they're rejoicing, as they're singing in the face of their sufferings, what happens? God sends an earthquake. God fights their battle for them. The shackles come loose. The prison doors swing open. Say They knew that God is a chain-breaking kind of God. 
God is a prison-shaking kind of God, a God that sends earthquakes and fights our battles for us when we just turn our attention to him, take refuge in him, sing and worship him. Right, this is what God does. And as they're rejoicing, they're singing in the face of their suffering, God fights their battles for them. And listen, every single person in this room, just like the jailer, we have all built our lives on something. There is a foundation that we have built our lives on, whether that's career or success or reputation or power or money or sex or whatever it is. And if you are, if you've built your life on that and you are thrown into a prison, you're instantly separated from all of those things that bring you meaning in life and you are left absolutely devoid of purpose, meaning you are left empty. But if you live for him, what we see with Paul and Silas, if you live for him, if you build your life on the foundation that is Christ himself, if you build your life on him, you become unshakable even in the darkest prison. You become an unwavering uh, person of hope with a resilient joy no matter how dark of a dungeon you're thrown into. It doesn't matter how dark your circumstances get. It doesn't matter how fiery the trial is. If you build your life on Christ, you will be unshakable. Because you'll know that the Lord is with you. He's walked that road before you. He's doing a work in you and he's fighting your battles for you. And it's funny because we, you know, we sing about these things. We read about these things, about the Lord fighting our battles for us. But when it comes down to it, oftentimes when we're thrown into a fiery trial, we, we find out that we don't really trust God as much as we wish we would. We, we find that our trust in him is lacking a bit. And we're not okay with simply sitting back and singing hymns to God whenever the trial comes our way. It doesn't feel responsible. It doesn't even feel reasonable. And yet this is exactly what Paul and Silas do and this is what God does in response. He sends an earthquake. He busts the prison gates wide open. See, they trusted in God's power and put their weight behind it. They trusted in God's faithfulness and goodness and put their weight behind it. They put their action behind it. Now, in those days, it was a wonderful retirement perk to become a jailer. You had all the, they had a great benefits package, you know, medical benefits, matching 401k plan. They had the whole deal, right? They didn't have that. Okay, but there, there was one catch. If any of your prisoners escaped, you know what your government did to you? They killed you. Just one catch. That's a nice retirement, but if a prisoner escapes, you are put to death. And so when the earthquake comes, the prison doors are thrown open, the, the, the shackles are loosed, the, this jailer is thinking two things. Number one, they are gone. And number two, I'm a dead man. 
That's what he's thinking. So what he does in response is he draws his sword and he's getting ready to kill himself and Paul tells him to stop, right? Even though they had every reason to run out of there, they had every right and reason to escape, God opened the doors wide open. They stayed put. They didn't leave. Why? Why in the world would they do this? Why would they have done that? Think about who the jailer is. Right, he's, he's a practical man, he's a brutal man, he's a Roman soldier. All he's ever seen his entire life as a soldier is you repay evil for evil. That's all he's ever seen, that's all he's ever known. You fight fire with fire, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That, that's what his life has been. And here, here are two men who have been treated so unjustly. They have every right and reason to escape, to run, and yet they stay Put and are absolutely joyful in the midst of horrendous suffering and injustice. They suffered incredible violence and brutality, and yet they stayed put. They are rejoicing there, and the jailer, listen, here's what the jailer realizes. He realizes that these two men sacrificed their freedom so that I wouldn't have to sacrifice my life. These two men sacrificed their freedom so that I wouldn't be killed. I wouldn't lose my life. And he'd never seen anything like it. He'd never seen anything like it. Look at verse 30. It says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, this is his response. What must I do to be saved? And they, they preached the gospel. That They tell him. And they said, this is the good news for you and your whole household. Right? The jailer essentially asked them, he comes to them in, in disbelief and he goes, what's wrong with you people? Well, what would cause you to stay put? You are free to go, you're free to run, and yet you are still here. What would cause you to do this? I, I've never seen anything like it. What is it that you have? What do I have to do to get this Jesus into my life? And they preach the gospel. They say, oh, you've never seen anybody overcome evil with good? You, you've never seen somebody overcome hate with love? Anger with mercy, injustice with grace. You've never, you've never seen that? Well, let's tell you about the ultimate example of this. His name is Jesus Christ, and he went into the deepest, darkest dungeon willingly for all of us. He laid down his life. He wasn't just beaten. He was murdered willingly for all of us, and he rose again for us. See, he stayed in the darkness so that we could go into the light. Right, And they're preaching the gospel to him and he's going, okay, what do I have to do to receive this Jesus into my life? What do I have to do? And what's so beautiful about this story is that night, the jailer, it says that he was washing their physical wounds, which a jailer would never do, but the, this is his response to what they've done for him. So he's washing their physical wounds. What's awesome is it says that this man and his whole household, they believed and were baptized. So while he is cleansing their physical wounds, his spiritual wounds are being cleansed. See, see, well, he is bringing physical wholeness to them. God is bringing spiritual wholeness to this jailer and his family. He's helping them get his foundation right. Acts 16, 34, it says, then... He, the jailer, brought them up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. 
there's a theme throughout this entire passage, and it's a theme of joy. It's a theme of stubborn, resilient joy in the midst of suffering. It's beautiful. And the outflow, this is, this is what we need to understand, the outflow, the evidence of an allegiance and adherence to the gospel, the outward fruit, the evidence of that is resilient joy. It's joy no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you face. The outflow, the evidence of an adherence to the gospel is joy. And even in the darkest dungeon, there is reason to rejoice. And this is why the scripture tells us over and over again that it's the joy of the Lord that is our what? Our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so the question for you today is what foundation are you building your life on? I wanna jump back to a theme that we touched on um, earlier in December. You know, one of the, the things that we see throughout the entire book of Acts is in the midst of all of the, the spreading of the gospel, persecution of the early church, in the midst of all of this, there's this pattern of God calling in and sending out. There is a pattern of God calling us in, you might remember, calling us in, raising us up, and sending us out, and that's what we see throughout the entire book of Acts. One of the things we said is that the measure of success for a church must never be how many people show up. It must be how far the word goes out. Right, the, the measure of success for a church must never be seeding capacity, but sending capacity. Right, and that we see this theme all throughout scripture. And in, in the church, there are times when that calling and sending is, it's, it's planned, it's strategic, it's intentional, it's, it's well understood in advance. There's, there are moments like that. And then there are moments where God is actively working without our knowledge. And it's our job to get on board with what he's doing in the calling and sending. It's our job to get behind what God is already actively doing in our midst. 